So love it, hate it, or just not care about it, we can't deny that the Bible has had a huge impact on our world. So the question is, what is it? Is it a relic of a distant superstitious era? Is it a tool to keep the masses under control? Is it, you know, something like has helpful myths with, with good life advice in it? Or is it a, a dangerous fundamental religious text? Or is it the word of God? Welcome to Together for Salem episode 73. I almost didn't know what the answer was. I'm it's good to it have you back. That way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for. Yeah, I was off last week uh -huh. from the hosting duties. Yeah. New series. Excited to start it. We're going to pass it off right away. True. Let us know you're watching. Send us an email info at your cross creek or use the welcome form. We will see you on the other side with some other things. Bunch of stuff. So much. Awesome stuff. Goodbye. Okay, bye. See ya. So maybe you've noticed that every episode in Together for Salem, we talk about a passage in this, the Bible. And I know that phrase brings a lot of emotions and feelings and thoughts to a lot of people. For some, it's, it's reverence and happiness and peace and even healing. But for others, that phrase, the Bible, brings hurts and anger and idea of, of rules and can bring even, even fear and disgust. See, almost everyone has an opinion about the Bible. People have been attacked and abused by others quoting the Bible. People's lives have been completely changed for the better just by reading it. People have been killed because of how someone else interpreted the Bible. And others have been killed trying to translate it and give it to others. And the thing is, if you think about it, we treat the Bible a lot differently than we do other ancient writings, don't we? Like, we don't orient our lives around and sit around reading and quoting and arguing about Hammurabi's code or, or Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, right? It's not like we say, you know, let's get together every week and here's, you know, what Homer really meant when he said Trojan horse. Well, what that means in the original, we don't do that, right? So love it, hate it, or just not care about it. We can't deny that the Bible has had a huge impact on our world. And so the question is, what is it? Is it a relic of a distant superstitious era? Is it a tool to keep the masses under control? Is it, you know, something like has helpful myths with, with good life advice in it? Or is it a, a dangerous fundamental religious text? Or is it the word of God? And so for the next few episodes, we're going to talk about what is the Bible? Where did it come from? Why do we make such a big deal about it? And is it something that, that can actually, we can actually understand and, and have it make a difference in our lives? And so before we really dive into those questions, probably a few clarifications as we get in here. 
I'm going to have to be brief. I've only got about 20, 30 minutes on, on these episodes. And so we could spend a few months talking about the history and, and all this about the Bible and genres and that type of stuff. And so I'm going to have to be quick. And you might have questions that I'm not going to touch on. You might have thoughts on some of the details of the things I say. Awesome. Email us. Email us at info at yourcrosscreek.com and we can have a conversation about those thoughts and questions you might have about the Bible. And also, I want to say, you can disagree with a lot that I'm going to talk about, especially the technical stuff, and you can still be a Jesus follower. You can still be a full part of the community and family of Cross Creek. We can disagree and still be in the same family. But what I want us all to see through this series is this. When we properly understand what the Bible is, we can understand how to use the Bible properly. And so maybe some basics first. And this might not be new information to you. It might just be review and it might be new to you, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. And so the first thing we need to do with the Bible is stop maybe thinking of it as the Bible, as a singular religious book. See, nobody sat down and said, you know, I think today I'm going to write a book and create a religion. (laughs) Nobody said that. See, what we call the Bible is actually a collection of 66 ancient documents with a whole bunch of different genres in it. And we'll talk about this next time of history and genealogies and biographies and poetry and legal documents and all these different things. It was written, these documents were written by over 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and on three different continents. And the writings from when the first one was written to the last one was written span about 1,500 years. And so instead of lumping all of this together by calling it the Bible, I prefer to call them the biblical writings because they were separate writings. That's how they came to us through history. And these different writings are divided into two sections, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the word testament, not a word we use a lot, right? We basically use it for when we talk about the Bible. The word testament comes from a Latin word meaning covenant. I know that totally clears things up. But really, we have what we have is the Old Testament, the, New, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. Covenant, when we see that word in the New Testament, comes from a Greek term used to refer to contracts or agreements between two people. And in the Old Testament, when we see covenant, it kind of means the same idea, but more like treaties between countries to define their roles and their expectations of each other. And so the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or the Old Agreement records the story of God creating and interacting with an ethnic religious community and nation called the Israelites or the Jews. It describes their history and focuses on the contract God made with them after he rescued them as slaves in Egypt, right? The the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments. That's what we're talking about. And then it records what happened, basically how they broke that contract and how God dealt with them and how they dealt with God and that type of thing. But the thing is, because those all these writings come to us or presented to us as the Bible in one holy book, people often try to apply this contract God had with ancient Israel, or at least <laughs> the parts they like of it, to, they try to apply it to their lives. And they even try to get others to follow it. And then they judge them if they don't, right? Maybe you've experienced that. But the Old Testament, the old contract, was written to a specific group 
in a specific time period. This contract, this covenant, was a temporary thing designed just for ancient Israel. And so, what that means is, unless you are an ancient Jew living before 35 AD, really nothing in the Old Testament writings, in terms of its rules, apply to you. No one alive today is required to meet the standards of the Old Testament in order to please God. I know. I might be throwing a whole lot of stuff at you and not really explaining too much of it because of our time constraints, and I'm talking pretty quickly. So, if that rubs you the wrong way, that I'm saying there's nothing in the Old Testament law that we are required to follow now, and that rubs you the wrong way, pause this. Ask your questions to the screen. State your objections. Rewind to see if I actually said what you think I said. And then maybe check out Hebrews 8, 7 through 13 and see what the writer says about the old law, the old covenant. And then if you still have questions or thoughts, I would love to talk to you about that. I would love to hear your questions, hear your thoughts. So again, email us at info at yourcrossweek.com. But to get back on track, why do Christians have the Old Testament? Why is it part of our Bible? Why do we read the Old Testament? A couple of things. It does. It introduces the heart of God to us. It helps us start understanding who God really is. It helps us understand his purpose for creating us. But most importantly, the Old Testament lays out the framework, the background of the most important event in human history. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, the foundations of Christianity is not a book but an event. See, God created a new covenant, a new contract, a new one-sided agreement based on what he did for us. See, Jesus' death and resurrection fulfilled and ended the old contract based on rules and performance and replaced it with a new promise based on love and trust. So you can think about it this way. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, focuses on an agreement between God and Israel. The New Testament, the New Covenant, focuses on a promise between God and you. And so that event, that pivotal event of human history, was so remarkable, so momentous, so really unbelievable, that those who actually witnessed it wrote down what they saw in order for others to understand what actually happened and then to explain what it actually meant. And so we have those writings in what we call the New Testament, the New Covenant. It's amazing. And what's really cool about it is these weren't written hundreds of years after the events happened, but actually in the lifetime of those who experienced these events. Here's, here's some examples. So Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, wrote this probably around 60 or 65 A.D., for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then Jesus' best friend John wrote this in probably around 85 to 95 A.D. 
We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. Notice like how he focuses on the fact that we actually saw this. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. <laughs> so, pretty cool. Like, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, and they wrote it down for us to see it. And you might be saying like, yeah, but okay, cool. You know, I saw it, but what about that resurrection stuff? That sounds kind of crazy. Like people don't just rise from the dead. Well, check this out. This is the earliest writing about Jesus rising from the dead. This was written about 53, 57 AD. I, this is Paul talking or writing. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the, as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, as Peter told us, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at, the, at one time, most of whom, as Paul's writing this, are still alive. Go ask them, Paul says, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, Jesus' little brother, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Written in 53 or 50, between 53 and 57 AD, while eyewitnesses were still alive. They could have said, no, 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 Jesus didn't rise from the dead. His body's right there. They didn't do that because his body wasn't there. Think about it. Paul wrote that about 20 years after the actual event. 20 years isn't that long. In fact, if you're watching the news lately, we're still seeing the effects of an event that happened 20 years ago, right now on our screens. See, 20 years is not enough time for legend to creep in, as some might be thinking with the whole resurrection thing. See, the, the point is, the New Testament writings aren't reliable because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they are reliable. And so you might be saying, Okay, John, I mean, nice homework you did. But I'll give you that, that at some point, eyewitnesses wrote about Jesus. Like, why wouldn't they? But we don't actually have their physical writings, do we? No, we don't. We don't actually have like, hey, this is Paul's handwriting. We don't have that. What we have, as you might be thinking, is we only have copies of what they wrote. And really what we have are recopies of the copies of what they wrote. And so how can we trust that we have in this Bible, these writings, what the authors actually meant to say. Like, how, how do we know they haven't changed, right? Like the whole game of telephone, right? Something whispers in the ear and then da, 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 and it changes, right? Well, the fact is, based on the historical and literary evidence, most scholars, whether they're Jesus followers or not, agree that the New Testament writings are the most reliable set of documents from the ancient world meaning we accurately have what was written by John, by Peter, by Paul, by James. So why did the scholars say that? I'm going to get into some details here. Buckle up. To decide whether ancient documents, and this is what for the Bible or for any ancient documents, to decide whether ancient documents can be trusted, scholars look at a few things. 
One of the things they look at is the number of manuscripts, how many different copies we have. The more manuscripts there are, the more it can be compared and, and contrasted to each other. And so we can see if there's contradictions or mistakes or there's bend changes, right? Another factor they look at is how close to the original writing those existing manuscripts are. Because if you're the third person in line of telephone, you kind of probably know what the person's saying. If you're the 50th, you're way off, right? So the closer to the original, the less chance of changing. So how many copies are there of these New Testament writings and how old are they? Well, let me compare really fast some other ancient writings. Talk about um, a historian named Thucydides. He was alive between 460 and 365 BC. And he wrote about the Greco-Roman culture and most historians trust that what he wrote was accurate. Well, what we have from Thucydides is about eight copies eight manuscripts. The earliest one is about 1,300 years after the events he records. Take Aristotle, right? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. We have Aristotle's Poetics. We have five copies of that. And the earliest manuscripts we have are 1,400 years after the originals were written. Or take one of, one of the most famous people in the history of the world, Alexander the Great. The biographies of Alexander the Great. How many manuscripts do we have of the that writing two and the earliest manuscripts we have is about four comes from about 400 years after he died one more caesar's gaelic wars right what what julius caesar did in his wars in gaul the few manuscripts we have from that from his autobiography basically is from about a thousand years after his death so let's compare that to the new testament how many copies do we have of the new testament writings about 25,000. And the earliest so far, which is a section of the Gospel of John, John's eyewitness account of Jesus's life, which it kind of portrays Jesus's um, trial with Pilate, if you've read that. The earliest one we have is from about 150 AD at the latest. And most scholars agree John wrote his Gospel, his account, probably around 80 or 90 AD, which means the copy we have of that writing is only 50 or 60 years after the original was written. Not thousands, just a couple of decades. So yeah, our New Testament writings, it is like having like the game of telephone, but it's more like having thousands of copies from the people who were third and fourth in line. And they all say the same thing, except for maybe they spell words a little bit differently, but they're saying the same words. See, the thing is, no scholars will disagree with what has been said so far. And I know it's been very, um, maybe like you're back in school. But the question remains. So we, we have these eyewitness accounts about Jesus. Cool. So what? Like, why did Jesus followers focus so much of their lives and like dictate their lives almost around these writings that are 2,000 years old? Well, the reason is we believe that the authors of the New Testament were more than eyewitnesses. They were chosen representatives. See, Jesus said something very interesting about the founding of his new movement of Jesus followers. And here's what he said right before he even started building this movement. He's talking to his, apostle, his disciple, Peter, at the time. And he says, with all the other disciples standing around, he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. But then he says it again only to the entire group. And he says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now he says, I know that can be confusing. He says, you have the keys of heaven. Right? Not being like, you get to choose who goes in and who goes out. That's not what he's talking about. The keys were a symbol of authority, and specifically the authority of teaching, of, of um, teaching people what this is actually about. So, so focus in for a second. This is important. It's not that the disciples, the apostles, we'll talk about that in a second. It's not that they would determine what was permitted or not in this new community of Jesus followers. It's that they would communicate, they would teach what had already been permitted or not by Jesus. Jesus is basically saying to them, I have chosen you, you 12, to lead and to guide the group I am creating. So I need you to trust that I will guide you in this. What you forbid, what you permit in this new community is already what has been forbidden or permitted in heaven, you will be teaching what I need you to teach. You have the authority, trust that you have the authority to speak my words, they're not yours, to speak my words on my behalf. Those are the apostles, the people who were chosen to speak for Jesus. See, the apostles of Jesus were chosen and authorized to speak for Jesus. I know that sounds kind of weird, right? Well, here's how Peter himself described it when he was explaining how the Old Testament prophets spoke for God, but he's also kind of speaking from his own personal experience here. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. The same idea is what Jesus was saying to his apostles. You will be speaking for God. You'll be speaking what God wants you to speak. But did these guys, these 12, you know, uneducated men, did they really know or did they think they were on the same level as the Old Testament prophets actually writing God's words? Well, Peter kind of adds to that too. And remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul, talking about Paul, also wrote to you, Paul's writings, which we have, with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. No kidding. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. So yeah, they knew what they were doing when they were writing. They knew that Jesus was telling them in some way, using their personalities, to write what he wanted them to write to his followers. So for the first 200 years of Christianity, Jesus' followers in different parts of the, the known world had maybe a few letters from Paul and that they maybe got from another group. They're like, hey, Paul sent this letter to us in Corinth. We want to give it to you, right, over in Ephesus. And so they would copy it and give it to them too. So they got, had a few letters maybe there, maybe a, a gospel, an eyewitness account or two, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that they could trace to an actual apostle. But eventually, and I'm definitely paraphrasing a lot of history really quickly, all these churches, these groups of Jesus followers, got together. And they realized they had many of the same writings 
and and could actually attest to their authenticity. Yeah, no, we got this from Ephesus and they got it straight from Paul. So yeah, we use the same thing. Oh, you guys use the eyewitness account of, of Peter through Mark? Yeah, so do we. And we have one from Matthew. Oh, cool. And so they decided to put all of those together so all the churches, all the groups of Jesus followers could have all the writings from the apostles. It would be like if... You know, we put all the, the Harry Potter books or the Lord of the Rings books in one large bound book together. So we had them all in one place, right? Or if we took the, the founding, all the writings of the founding fathers of, of, the, of the United States and put them in one volume. So we had them all together. So we knew what like this whole group was thinking and, and doing, right? That's what the New Testament is like. See, but this decision to put them all together it didn't make the writings all of a sudden authoritative or all of a sudden inspired by God because they decided to put them in the book together. These churches were simply saying that these are the writings that have always had authority for us. These are the writings we've, we've always followed because they were written by Jesus' apostles, apostles who had authority from Jesus. See, the New Testament writings don't have authority because they're in the Bible. They are in the Bible because the writers had Jesus' authority. So what does all that mean for us? I know there's a lot there. Well, first, the New Testament writings did not create the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus created the New Testament writings. See, something, everyone agrees, every historian agrees, something happened in first century Israel. An event an event that honestly is one of the best attested to events in history. And we have eyewitness accounts of what actually happened then and what it meant and what it still means today. And we also have authorized explanations of what that means to allow this event to change us now and forever. So think about it. We have the actual writings the actual words of Jesus, the actual actions of Jesus, and the writings of his followers who had his authority to say, here's what it means that he died and rose again. And so if you've never given the biblical writings a true read, or maybe you've never thought about them this way, the way we've described in this episode, I, I think you have an opportunity. Read them. So start with Mark. Start with the eyewitness account of Peter that Mark wrote for Peter. Read what actually happened, what Jesus actually said from Peter's perspective. And once you read that, then read the implications of that life from John's, Jesus' best friend's explanation of it. So then read 1 John. And you could read both of these in a week easily. Just read about three chapters a day. Three chapters of Mark a day and then three chapters of 1 John. And you'll get through it in about a week. You'll be ready for the next episode. But let this sink in one more time. We have the actual actions and words of Jesus. We can trust that we have what he said. We have the actual eyewitness accounts from people who were the closest to him. They say Jesus claimed to be God. And then he actually proved it by dying like he said he would and rising again like he said he would. And they wrote these things while other eyewitnesses were still around so the readers could double check and be like, did that really happen? Like, yeah, I know it's crazy, but yeah. See, there was no time for legend to sink in. It happened during their lifetimes. So it might seem crazy, but we can logically and historically believe the unbelievable story of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
In our next episode, we're gonna talk about how do we know what to do with what's written? Like we have it, we have these words, but what do we do with it? See, the reading these writings can seem so overwhelming, right? And, and what do we do with like the hard sayings and the things that don't always make sense? What do we do with that? That's what we're gonna talk about. But I wanna leave you with John's words, Jesus' best friend, what he wrote about these historical accounts. This is the end of John's eyewitness account of Jesus' life, the Gospel of John. This disciple is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. And then in his letter, 1 John, he explains why they wrote these things. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, not hope, but know that you have eternal life. That was like a fire hose hmm? in your face of information in a good way. Yes. Yep. And I'm going to share my favorite Bible verse was shared there at the end. Um, not enough books in the world could contain all the stories about what Jesus has done. I'm looking forward to that replay in eternity mm -hmm. when we're reigning in the kingdom with people seeing replays of Jesus's life and all the things he did here on earth. It's going to be super rad. Super rad. All right. Next week is part two. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a fun one. We're going to do some giveaways. Yeah. Like first, Big Wig Donuts. Mm -hmm. They have vegan, gluten-free donuts. Because no animal, no wheat shall be injured wow. in the making of a donut. <laughs> and they That's have some fun flavors. Necessary. So our winner. Oh, our winner. Yeah. Matthew T. Matthew T. Otherwise known as Matt T. Otherwise, otherwise known as Matt. Congratulations. Congratulations. You're a random winner. You get winner. some donuts. Yep. Big Wig Donuts downtown. They only serve donut holes, but that's all you're ever going to need once you, those. I was going to ask what does $25 worth of donut holes look like? Maybe Matt will make a pyramid. Oh, cool. Oh, donut holes. Yep. If you do, Matt, take a picture or post it. I want to see that. Yes. It's going to be a mile high. This week, we're going to do another giveaway yes. to Mina's Cafe. Oh. Thai food, also in South Salem. Sorry, mm -hmm. North Salem, Kaiser, Albany, Wilsonville people. We're just this hitting week. that commercial. Yeah. Uh, but Mina's Cafe, if you want to mm -hmm. be treated like family and have some amazing Thai food, Mina's Cafe. Great stuff. Takeout, curry, mm -hmm. all of it. Amazing I like food. curry. Yes, we, yeah. we will go there. But we're gonna give away $25 to Minas. You can enter to win the random giveaway on social media or email us. So thank you for that. It's fun, it's fun to give away gifts. It's fun mm -hmm. to be you know, generous with the little that we have. So, yes. and it's fun also to tell you about different places in Salem, mm -hmm. in the Salem-Kaiser area, because we have some cool spots around here. If you ever mm -hmm. have any ideas for giveaway, we always welcome. Hit us up on the social medias and stuff. Yeah. Hey, also, mm. sup podcasters like, oh. Where are my podcasters at? Where are they at? Oh, man. I mean, they're listening. Good job. Yeah. yeah. Hey, what are we doing, uh, speaking also of being generous? Mm. See that smooth transition? Mm-hmm. In terms of our August for Salem opportunity. Yes, it's almost the end of August. By yes. the time you're watching this, it may as well be September. But that's okay. You can still participate. The link is in the description or the show notes to give, give, give school supplies to CASA, mm -hmm. which is a nonprofit um, here in Marion County, and they help 
foster kids and foster families. So these school supplies will go directly to some of our most vulnerable kiddos. So please check that out. You can go to our website or you can donate just via their Amazon wish list and it will mail it to CASA. So That's it's amazing. super easy and they always have needs. So mm -hmm. check them out, check it out. Consider being for your neighbor in this tiny but important way for August. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Is there anything else we have? No. No. Questions coming up. Don't trip yourself. Snow beige pie. It's been a whole week. Two weeks. Two weeks. Good dinner. <coughs>